um, yeah, that complicated pregnancy was so last year. But <laughs> I do have a commentary that I co-authored co with Janine Brown, if you know Janine from Bethel. She's a New Testament scholar, and that one just came out about a month ago. Um, but this one's more fun. So this, this book, and thank you for inviting me here. It's always fun to talk about your projects and when they come to fruition to, you know, um, just be able to, to have a dialogue about them and get some feedback. And some of you may have started reading, uh, your book for your book club. I don't know, but it'd be great to hear some of that feedback. And when you have questions, I would love that. Um, so yeah, I'm a professor at, I'll do a little introduction. You don't have to go back and record it. I'm a, a professor and academic dean now at United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, which is in New Brighton, though we're moving in January. Um, so January 18th, that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, we'll be moving to a new space that uh, was well, a converted warehouse in um, Midway, 280 and University. So we'll be a little closer. We'll be in St. Paul and feel free to stop by and check us out when we're in the new place. Uh, right now, we're kind of tucked away in the suburb, um, so this is going to be, a, I think, a very helpful move for us. But uh, I've been at United for five years, was at Bethel for nine years prior to that, teaching a Christian theology and Christian thought. I could not have written this book at Bethel, um, <laughs> at least and remained employed, um, and I'll explain a little bit about that. When I first started to write this book, and uh, uh, wrote the proposal to write the book, I had a different conclusion in mind. I was going to essentially try to write a book about the virgin birth that argued for that progressive Christians can affirm a traditional theology and traditional belief in uh, the virgin birth, virginal conception, um, and kind of hold those, st those stories and that theology progressively whatever that meant. And I had some ideas about how kind of intersection with science and uh, affirming miracle, but in a way that uh, kind of takes account complexities of how uh, physics and biology and all of that stuff. Um, as I started to really dive into the research on the book and really explore the question, was Mary a virgin and why does it matter? Um, the kind of mountain of evidence just started to accumulate in a way that did not support my initial assumption um, or proposal. Um, and so it, I just got to a point where there was a tipping point um, in terms of the cumulative case or the argument. And I felt like I could no longer, in good conscience, argue what I was going to argue. And instead, um, realized I would have to take a different approach. And so I texted my um, editor and just said, I can't write this book the way that we talked about and the way that I planned. And his response was, shit. Because um, <laughs> he thought it was a good sort of marketing, you know, uh, kind of edgy, but not really. Um, progressive but sort of pseudo-progressive, and uh, just turned out that it wasn't going to work. So we, we talked about it, we talked through a, a different approach to it, and so essentially the approach to the book is, hey, I was going to argue this way, and I can't now because the 
the kind of the burden of the cumulative case points in a different direction in terms of the evidence. Um, now, I use the term evidence loosely there um, because we're talking about something that happened or didn't happen thousands of years ago. Um, so I take into account kind of the historical uh, material, the historical data, as it were, the scientific issues involved in in imagining something like a virginal conception. Um, and uh, so the historical, the scientific, and also um, the kind of just looking through tradition and how the Christian tradition has taken the two gospel accounts of the infancy, the birth of Jesus in Matthew and Luke, and really taken it a very different direction than the two Gospels actually present the story and made it much more about Mary's virginity, Mary's purity, um, kind of uh, the asexual nature of the conception and even the birth and sort of purified, quote unquote, um, the story of Jesus, the origin of Jesus. Um, and then in, in, and also kind of upholding Mary as this exemplar of sort of sexual purity, the paragon of virtue and so on. And so the, the Christian tradition, kind of um, the way it, uh, it sort of spun the two gospel narratives in a different direction, um, all of those things, just kind of thinking through that. And um, ultimately, though, my argument is that from the standpoint of the logic of the incarnation itself, the virgin birth or virginal conception does not make sense. It actually undercuts the logic of the incarnation. And what is the logic of the incarnation? What do I mean by that? That God or the Son of God, the Logos, the eternal word, all those things, becomes a real living human being in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's the point, right, of the incarnation in the infleshing of God as a real human being. And yet, the Christian tradition, um, the mechanism of that incarnation is a supernatural, miraculous, virginal conception in which no man is involved, no human male, and God somehow, through the Holy Spirit or whatever, some divine injection, <laughs> uh, Divine insemination, artificial, it's a term I use in the book, divine artificial insemination, um, that, that God interrupts the kind of biological process, the evolutionary line, and creates this new kind of person, Jesus of Nazareth, who's really not then human, right, in, in, a, in a technical sense, or if he was or is, becomes human in a way that none of us did. And that no other human does. And so it, that very idea is already a kind of uh, betrayal in a sense or a, um, a contradiction to the very idea of the incarnation. And so I, I had read other theologians sort of make a similar point. Jürgen Moltmann, Wolfhard Pannenberg and others. And that just really struck me as the most compelling argument. Uh, against uh, affirming a traditional theology of the virgin birth was the, that if you were going to construct a, a, a story 
to support the theology of the incarnation, that's not how you would do it today. But yet it made sense to them and 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 in the time because they had a different worldview, different biological assumptions, different understandings of the way um, conception happens and so forth. It made sense in that context. Um, so that's, that's just kind of all the backdrop to how I started writing the book, how my mind started to change, um, and then uh, uh, th- that took me down a very different path. Let me just say a couple more things about some of the problems with the traditional theology of the incarnation or of the virgin birth. And then I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what we gain when we move past it. And then I'll just open it up for questions. So I'm just going to, I don't even need that. Um, (laughs) the, when I say virginal conception, I, I say that with specific intentionality because virginal conception means something different from virgin birth in, in sort of the traditional Way, the way the old theologians talked about it. A virgin, virgin birth specifically suggests that Jesus was delivered, um, the baby Jesus was delivered virginally, meaning that uh, Mary remained a virgin, a sexual virgin, a biological virgin, hymen intact and everything else after the delivery of Jesus. So her body was preserved in a sense, her purity preserved um, through the, the, the delivery of the baby. Theologians like Anselm and Augustine, if you know, if you've taken a theology class, you may know those names, uh, were really insistent on this point, the preservation of Mary. Um, and there are a lot of specific reasons for that, but that's kind of part of what I mean when I say that the early Christian tradition started to take this idea of the birth of Jesus down a very different path than what's actually suggested in the two gospel accounts. Um, In the two gospel accounts, and this is important, there are only two gospels, there are only two places really in the entire Bible where we have a story, the story of the birth of Jesus, and that's Matthew and Luke. We don't have a, or a, a birth story of Jesus in Mark, which is the oldest of the Gospels. Most scholars, consensus, agree that Mark was written uh, prior to both Matthew and Luke. And so that raises a question, well, why wouldn't the earliest Gospel have the story of the birth of Jesus? This would be such an important piece of the whole story to have the origin, the supernatural origin of Jesus in Mark. But it's not there. And in fact, Mark even, there are hints in Mark um, of a illicit conception that uh, Jesus was born out of wedlock prematurely uh, in terms of the Jewish kind of purity, sexual codes, and so forth. Um, or uh, that Jesus was a product of, his, his conception was a product of rape. And there was a, a rumor at the time that had been a number of rumors, but one of which was that uh, Mary was raped by a Roman soldier named Pantera, and then that resulted in the conception of Jesus. Um, none of this can be verified or falsified at this point, but you could... Pantera, yeah, just like the band, yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's a connect, uh, actual connection, but coincidence, maybe, I don't know. Um, yeah, so so Mark does not, does not have a... 
a story of the birth of Jesus. John, of course, does not also have an infancy narrative or a story of the conception of Jesus. Um, John's interest is in the pre-existence of the Logos. In the beginning was in the beginning of creation was the Word, and the Word was God. Uh, and then it jumps to John the Baptist, right? So, and similarly, Mark begins with John the Baptist. Um, so I thought that was interesting, right? That the later Gospels, at least in terms of the synoptics, Matthew and Luke, did not have that. And in fact, when you look at the Gospel accounts of Matthew and Luke, they are not consistent with each other in, in every detail. There's obviously overlap, but there's a lot of di differences as well in terms of how they tell their story. For example, Luke doesn't have um, Mary and Joseph and Jesus going down to Egypt to escape the wrath of King Herod. That's only in Matthew. Um, the angel uh, in Matthew appears to Joseph. I think I'm getting that right. The angel in Luke appears to Mary. In Luke, it's Gabriel. In Matthew, there's no name. There's a lot of differences. Um, and even chronological issues when you start kind of unpacking the history of it in relation to other historical accounts of the day. You know, when, did, when was uh, Herod king of Judea? When was uh, Quirinius governor? And they don't line up. And, you know, these different things that scholars like to get into. So when you start to compare the two Gospels' stories against themselves, they don't match. What hap when we celebrate Christmas, the manger scene, and nativities, and all of that, we kind of just merge it all into one story. But really, they're two distinct stories with overlap. Um, and that is interesting. So when people say, why can't you just accept the Bible's account? Like, well, which one <laughs> do you mean? Um, you mean Matthew's account or Luke's account? Um, so already, you know, you, you start to kind of try to untangle that, and you have to make then choices about which version you would prefer or seems to be most uh, trustworthy and so forth. But what that does is it raises the prospect of the historicity, raises the question of the historicity of these accounts. Many scholars suggest that the uh, infancy narratives were added later to the Gospels, um, that you know the 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 stories of Jesus evolved over many years as the early Christians started to tell the stories about the, their Messiah, their Lord Jesus, um, and as he grew in in sort of celebrity, as it were, and importance and stature in the Christian communities, um, it made sense that a story about the origin of Jesus that was that had a supernatural element to it, a, a miraculous element to it, a divine intervention element to it, would have emerged um, as the stature of Jesus in the early Christian communities also emerged. Every important political and religious leader throughout the early world, uh, early history, had some kind of supernatural origin story. They weren't all virgin birth stories. In fact, um, Jesus, the story of Jesus is unique in that respect in terms of a virginal conception um, and, and how it plays out. But, um, but in any case, it makes sense that after Jesus was kind of fixed in the early Christian communities as the one to be worshipped, the Son of God, the Messiah, 
that this origin story would have also, or multiple origin stories would have come to be. Um, and I say that because I think there's something very important about distinguishing between the infancy narrative and the origin of Jesus and the passion narrative, the death and resurrection of Jesus. That story or those stories, the, all four Gospels have that story um, or some variation of that story. And uh, the early Christian communities had that story very much fixed in their uh, liturgy, when they gathered like this on Sunday morning, that's what they talked about. That's what they celebrated was the resurrection, was the, the death of Christ, the resurrection from the grave, and what that means for the Christian life. Um, it was not about the virgin birth. It was not about the birth of Jesus, the origin of Jesus. It was about his, what Jesus accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. Um, so those were the kinds of things that I was uh, thinking through. And ultimately for me, it was, it was the, the incarnation itself, the theology of the incarnation, that when we aligned that theology with our own understanding, contemporary understanding of biology and conception, how do you get, to, how do you get a human male? Well, there's something called a Y chromosome and where, that determines the male sex and where does that come from? How did that get there if there was no human male, uh, male father, biological father? Yeah, well, Jesus could, or God, sorry, God could have miraculously inserted the DNA. Um, some of you are more scientific. I met one earlier. Uh, in, you know, into Mary um, in, from the divine lab and and, and put it in there. But on one, what basis would that genome have been constructed and created? And, you know, so all of those interesting things. Uh, so once, once I got past and, and the, the sort of mountain of evidence changed my mind, started to argue in a very different way, what became apparent to me was that everything that I may have thought I lost by giving up or moving behind, leaving behind a literal reading of the Gospels, the two Gospel uh, infancy narratives, and a, and a traditional theology of the virgin birth was uh, actually quite minimal in comparison to what I gained uh, in terms of my own understanding of the Christian faith, spirituality, um, theology, uh, because I started to see and understand Jesus in a more profound way and to appreciate even the meaning of Christmas in a more profound way. My uh, fundamentalist uncle, when he learned about the book, was not very happy with me, and he sent me an email letting me know, and sarcastically was like, so I guess you won't be celebrating Christmas this year, huh? <laughs> um, and, you know, it turns out, no, it didn't actually mean that I wasn't interested in celebrating Christmas. In fact, it was quite the reverse because it really impressed on my heart and mind the significance of the Son of God becoming a real human being, like actually born in the very same way, becoming a human being in the same way that you and I became a human being, um, which is uh, a, male, a male and a female parent that uh, we all came into this world through the same evolutionary line, through the same human 
lineage, right, that stretches all the way back. And um, because Jesus came into the world in that same way, that means he is not different from you or I in some fundamental sense, that he is the same. God, Emmanuel, God for us, became a human in the same way that you and I became a human. Why? This is what the early Christians said. He became like us in every way so that he could redeem us and transform us from within our own human experience. That which was not assumed cannot be healed was an early mantra of the early church. That, that when, because Jesus assumed our human nature, he could heal our human nature from within it. And the, the power of that thought, that, that idea, became even more so when, when, I, when I really uh, grappled with and accepted this notion for myself of a human conception of the divine Son of God. And I can say more about that um, the, and, and the, the benefits are, in a sense, of kind of leaving a traditional theology of conception of Jesus behind. But I think I'll just open it up for questions. Is that, does this feel like a good time to do that? Um, or discussion, yeah. 